Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Kids Media Club podcast. I'm Andy Williams. Hello and I'm Joe Redfern. Welcome along. Uh, and today we're talking about sport with two guests. We've got uh, Maurice Wheeler here and Tom Bowers. And we're going to be talking in about next-gen fandom and how we bring along the next generation of sports fans uh, into sport. We know that kids' relationship with sport and how sport is consumed, broadcast, um, is changing. So we're going to delve into that today. Morris, I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself briefly first, and then Tom, and then we'll dive right in. My name is Morris Wheeler, uh, and I am the, the UK CEO of the Kids and Family Marketing Agency, We Are Family. Hi, everyone. I'm Tom Bowers, and I'm the founder of interactive broadcast and live event consultancy, Hypothesis Media. Amazing. Thank you for joining us. And so we'll start, really, by uh, discussing the report that you have recently published, Morris, about sports fandom amongst kids. Just tell us a little bit about that, and then we can jump into what it really means and how uh, kids' media can address sports for the next generation. Sure. So this was a, a global piece of research that we did with um, our kind of global partner and our global network. So we spoke to about 4,000, just over 4,300 kids around the world. So a decent kind of decent size of seven to 12 year olds. And we, we spoke to them in UK, US, France, Italy, Germany, Spain, Singapore. So it's a good good kind of mixture um, uh, of, of kind of a, a global, a slight global look. Um, and th there's two big chunks of the, of the, the report. There's a, there's a fandom piece and there's also a participation piece. And the fandom piece is the first piece that we've just published. And I guess what we were doing there was trying to understand what are the, some of the key areas that the organizations or sports bodies or even kind of sporting individuals might want to think about when they're thinking about how to engage children in, in a kind of fandom-based relationship? Um, and we, we saw a few things coming through, the value and importance of social connections um, and how uh, the, the definitely never overlook the most powerful thing as far as the deciding factor about whether a child is going to be a fan of anything is really, are their family all fans? Are their friends all fans? If those two are a single club, a single player, then it's almost certain that that child will probably end up going down that route. So just talking a little bit about the value and importance of the social connection that sports brings and how um, being part of a, a collective, a social group, a tribe, if you like, of other, of other fans is important to children, even at that kind of seven to 12 year old where they're beginning to establish some of those deeper social connections. So talked a little bit, um, we, we kind of uncovered a little bit around that. We looked at self-definition, so how um, children use sports fandom as a means of defining who they are. Um, so they would, in many respects, a lot of the time, they might introduce themselves as a football fan or even a Liverpool fan or a kind of very specifically using fandom as, again, as a means of identifying um, with their tribe, but also as a means of kind of, um, you know, so they would use their fandom as a badge, if you like, to kind of say, this is who I am, judge me based on my fandom in, in many respects. So the role and the importance of sports fandom as a means of self-definition and also self-worth and self-esteem for some of it as well. If their team wins, then they get a little kind of self-esteem and self-worth boost. So that kind of self-definition piece. We looked at the importance of winning um, and the, the kind of value of winning and um, not just from a 
my team wins and kind of basking in the reflective glory of your team winning, which is a, a very important kind of psychological value, I guess, um, of being a fan of something. But also um, the importance of, in participation of children winning. So, you know, it's a big part of who they are is, is children kind of feeling that they're progressing and doing well and moving on and succeeding and being competent in things. So that kind of winning was quite important. And also the, the kind of flip side, I guess, of winning, which is more around the, you know, if your team loses, then, you know, you kind of turn your back on them a little bit. And one of the things that we uncovered was how um, terrible cheating is. So children really kind of have quite a, a, quite a violent response to if their team cheats. Um, you know, this is seven to 12 year olds and they have a very astute uh, understanding of right and wrong and they are very much kind of you know their, their justice is important to them so um you know if their team gets caught cheating then that affects them quite um quite profoundly again it kind of goes into some of that self-definition piece we also looked at home advantage the importance of, of of local and actually how children don't necessarily have a huge association with their local team uh, but they do, but it's just because all their family and all their friends might be the fan of a local team. They can actually quite is easily form a relationship and a bond with a team on the other side of the planet because they don't necessarily have that same. They've not built up some of that local community, local connection um, vibe yet. So, you know, and we saw that in quite a few countries where they might not have a strong. So, for example, Singapore doesn't have a particularly strong local sports scene their fans were fans of Manchester United and Dallas Cowboys and kind of whoever it may be. So just looking at that and also looking at the nationality of some of the sports stars as well. Again, they don't need to be, if you're a British child, you don't, you don't necessarily have to support or, or kind of be in love with a British sports star. You actually are, are quite happy to embrace all sports stars of all nationalities. We looked at players and then lastly, we looked at the changing shape of, um, of, of, uh, of fandom and how they're exposing themselves to sport. What are the channels that they're watching sport on? How has the changing landscape in the sorts of stuff that children like to consume affected their fandom and the sorts of content that they like to enjoy? It sounds super interesting. And there's a couple of things that I'd love to delve into there. Just that penultimate point you made, actually, about um, the a kid's view of sport becoming more global, I suppose. And I think that's been facilitated by their access to different media. And perhaps this is where I can bring you in, Tom, in terms of um, what I've been really interested in observing, and I'm using my focus group of two teenage boys here, is how um, that they are interested in, um, kind of NFL and NHL from the US, which is not something that is is really widely shown or broadcast in the UK, but they're accessing it through their phones and through social media platforms. And then that brings me to um, the the kind of role of interactive TV, knowing how kids love interactivity and how to get them engaged with sport. It really needs an extra layer and uh, things like, in the NFL, I know the very famous Nickelodeon tie-up, and they tend to do one around Christmas. I think it might be either just happening or about to happen where they layer on elements of Nickelodeon. They have the slime. Tom, do you think that's, that's you know, in a way, a way to engage kids with next level fandom and also get them into sport that isn't perhaps quite so local? Yeah, I think it's... That's I think that's absolutely key. It's, it's it's about creating relevancy to the kids and where they're at 
I mean, the Nickelodeon example is a great one because <clears throat> it's called, I think it's called Nickmas, or it was last year, whether they changed it this year. Um, but having that kind of simulcast of almost kidifying that NFL element where this is a forum where, they, where those eyeballs are, but we're going to present it in a way that makes it almost like anti sport in some respects. It's almost like, let's, let's throw some guns on it. Let's, let's cause havoc. Let's, you know, do the things that wouldn't you, you, you wouldn't usually expect, but it's in a environment and forum that's relevant to that demographic and audience. And I think it's that kind of um, more interactive experience type led element that uses and leverages something that's already happening in, you know, being similar, uh, being cast somewhere else, but you're using the same feed and doing something different that appeals to that audience. And then I think by that, that point, they understand if they've not into sport, they can understand more about it in a forum, even if they just join to sort of go, oh, right, let's throw some gunge or, you know, interact with the, with the characters that are jumping across the screen in some, in some capacity, because that, that's what they know and love about Nickelodeon. But they're actually being exposed to some of the, you know, the rules of the game or how the game is presented in a more traditional fashion. And I think it's that overlap that creates that accessibility um, which I think is really interesting. And it obviously, obviously works really well for Nickelodeon and hence they're doing it again and again. So I think about having those interactive opportunities, I mean, it's not going to appeal to all, all kids, but I think I think by having, um, you know, really sophisticated character animations and, you know, speaking in a visual language that children are engaging with in other mediums on and esports and uh, online gaming and that kind of area, blending those two together, it's like, oh, this this speaks to me. Oh, let's dive into this. And let's learn more about it. And it's providing that overlap, which I think is absolutely key. And broadcasters have got to embrace that and a, a you know into next year a lot more deeper level to really attract this sort of next generation of of sports fans and convert them ultimately. And do you see that um, those kind of partnerships between big entertainment brands and sporting events continuing kind of in the same way do you do you think we'll see a lot more of that you talked about Nickelodeon I think, earlier yeah I, I think looking to the US they're obviously around sort of 18 months two years ahead of kind of trialing this kind of area out so I think it's yet to be seen more over in Europe um and the benefit of uh, so we work with a, a a company called The Famous Group, who are sort of do lots of fan experiences in venue and on TV. So we get to see what what is being requested over there, and we can kind of, hence the name, hypothesise a little bit about what what could work over here, and we kind of reversion it in a way that it will be relevant to this market. I don't think necessarily it would work in a, a as a jazz handsy kind of way over here. The audio, even the, the youth audience is, is different, but I certainly think that there is strong learnings to be had and to build upon over in this in this territory to engage with with uh youth audiences um because it speaks as i said before it speaks in in terms visual terms that they understand and at the moment traditional television doesn't speak to them which they they, they switch off from it. it's so far removed from where they're immersed in either you know on social channels on tiktok or instagram and the the, the variation of content they get or or roblox or you know, YouTube shorts, it's, it's, it's that bite size variety of visuals or gaming, mm. which is there too. If we can combine those into some way of, and overlapping them, I def- definitely think that's, that's the way to go. But doing it in a more European 
broadcasty way. Hmm. And and I want to come to you. Uh, just take one of those points and and see if it came up in the report, Morris, in terms of this idea that Tom was mentioning that there's potentially two streams. You've got an NFL game and there's one stream that is just broadcasting the game as played, as live, and maybe parents and the grown-ups are watching that, but there's a separate stream that has the overlay. It has the Nickelodeon gunge. It has the things popping out of the pitch when there's a touchdown. But, you know, is that a way to your earlier point about traditionally fandoms passed down between generations and it might be team affiliations? Actually, is having two streams of a football game, but really one that's kind of aimed at kids with all of that interactive overlay, but the grown-ups are watching the standard game, is that maybe a way to, again, increase that connection between generations and bring them together around the same sport, but they're both experiencing it slightly differently? I think what we... What we saw, I'm trying trying to pick my words carefully because I, I don't I don't I think that's wrong. As in, I think that actually the approach, the Nickelodeon approach, isn't quite getting it right. Because what we've seen is that children don't actually want to engage in, in a long game and they don't want to engage in live. They're not, it's just it's that linear model, which is something that is what they're turning away from. I think the danger is, is that from a broadcasting perspective, is that the broadcasters are saying, oh, okay, well, we're losing children's engagement with those long, you know, particularly when you think about NFL games, they can be four hours long. So, you know, when we're losing children's engagement with some of those long live games. So what we, what do we need to do? We need to kind of, you know, add children, kidified elements to it. I don't know whether that's, I think that might have some potential short-term effects, but I don't know whether that's potentially where we're seeing things going from the long term. When we spoke to children, what they were doing with, when they were engaging with sports is they were engaging through the – it was much more about the medium and the channel focus than it was necessarily about the kind of the, the child childish nature of it. What I mean by that is they would love watching football, but as a TikTok kips and comps you know they love watching Messi's skills through his channel on tiktok you know i think messi's got like 500 billion streams of his content on tiktok that are kind of messy streams ronaldo's got like 400 million followers on instagram like this is how the children are now engaging with sport and i want a relationship with sport so i think that the, the danger is is it going oh what we need to do is try and work out a way that we can bring children into the adult world of the 4 hour long live gaming experience but what our children are going is no what i want to do is have sport come into my world which is kind of what tom was saying around gaming but we're seeing is that children are engaging and they're much more interested about some of those live clips sorry not live clips comps skills challenges I think the other really interesting thing is around the newness of content, full stop. TikTok, the algorithm doesn't in any way particularly benefit the latest content. So what we're seeing is that children are more than happy to watch an incredible goal from five years ago. And the fact that it was five years ago doesn't make them go, oh, this is this is so last year, because they're engaging with constant pieces of content that can be 10 years old. You know, they're re-engaging with like Malcolm in the Middle episodes from 15 years ago. So I think the newness thing, the length of time thing and the live thing are all challenges for that live sports experience. And I think ultimately, I don't think you're ever going to get, I, my feeling is, and from the 
all the children that we spoke to is they are not interested in engaging with that live sports experience. They want to have it in their way, which is much more short, pithy, rapid bits of content and highlights and clips than it is a kind of a longer live game experience. That That's really interesting. Do you think then that the social media aspect of, of this whole thing has changed the way that the um the young people kind of engage in terms of the personalities that they follow on the team do that is it more about kind of building a relationship with you know a star player or is there that kind of dimension to it that's that's really important that is super important and that actually varies quite a lot by country so for example we see in america they're much more player focused than they are team focused whereas you look at some of the more what you would imagine to be the classic kind of um, heartlands of sport fandom of like Italy and Spain, where they are much more team focused. So we did explore, you know, where do you sit? Are you, you know, if your favorite player left a side, would you follow the player or would you stick with your side? And we found that in America, they'll follow the player. Whereas in, in Italy, they're like, no, 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 I'd stick with my team. So the kind of the, the actual personality is not, it, it kind of depends on the market, but they become a, a very important piece as well we did see a big difference between boys and girls as far as what they want out of sport whereas um, we saw for example on things like I want to understand some of the players background some of their motivations some of their their journey to where they got to girls tend to want that sort of content a bit more than boys boys want a a bit more content around the kind of winning and achievements versus girls so we kind of saw a difference between gender as well as between country as far as um, the sorts of thing they're after but I think you're right. I think that what's interesting is that it's what they are, the content that they that they want to um, uh, consume is now is is being driven exclusively by the sorts of content that's being produced by the social networks. So it's more around. I don't think you can fight the social networks, and you can go, okay, well, if they want the short content, great, but we're going to try with a long piece of content. I think you've got to go with the formats that they're currently super comfortable with um, uh, consuming and kind of go there first um, and, and use that approach first. I think, is is it a question of there's space for it all? Because I'm sure, yeah, I, I'm with you. I think kids do pretend to, um, do tend to want to time shift and watch clips and comps and highlights packages. Um, but in terms of, you, you know, it, it's it's a criticism of kids that it tends to be, oh, their attention spans have, have shortened and they're incapable of focusing and watching anything longer than 30 seconds now. And I, I don't necessarily agree because for those who really do get into something, they will watch hours and hours of it. So that, you know, might, might extend to a, a longer game. Although, yeah, I mean, again, it's a, a four-hour NFL game is... is you know, challenging for most people, particularly us Brits. Um, but in terms of, you know, there being a space where both exist, that that importance for, for gamifying kind of or making content interactive, how do you, in your world, Tom, how do you then kind of take that and do you help other platforms outside of broadcasters? How do you help them kind of take that and extend it onto other platforms? Well, I think I think the most important thing is to create some kind of heightened experience for the 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 target audience, the fan in general. Like something that we've learned across the years is 
you know, you have to ask yourself, what's the point of doing this? Why, why would you have some kind of interactive element? Why, how is it going to appeal to the fan, whether that's a, a televisual level or an in venue? Like what, give, give the purpose and put, put it in a term of why they would tune in to watch a certain thing that's happening on television or how they would do a certain thing on social media to affect something that's happening on television. And I think it's, it's really important to try and make sure that you're, if you've got children that are uh, on channels and they feel comfortable on those channels, what is the reason when you're talking to these brands to signpost them on those channels to see something cool and innovative that's on your main channel where, you know, you need to bring some eyeballs to it's um, you know, it's got a lot of brand sponsorship in and around it, which is, which is essential to, you know, keep those guys part of the equation happy. Um, so if you can, if you can give a, a justifiable reason as to why they should be going to that, and I'm not saying, I think Morris is right. I don't think that children would watch a whole match if they'd never watched it before. But if you can find that child's Super Bowl halftime moment where you can go, this is going to happen at this point during the game. You'd, it's something brand new. You're going to love it. Advertise it to them in a certain way where they are going to get some kind of heightened experience to being exposed to it, that their friends, they can go and tell their friends about and then share it on social media afterwards. I think that is the way to go about it. And through that process, if you do capture a few of them that want to stay longer and watch it more, then it then win-win. But I think because you're, you're just basically tapping into the ecosystem that's already there, that makes sense that that individual, am I going to see something cool and innovative that I can say to my friends, like that, that water cooler moment that we all love from an experience perspective, it's about ex explaining that to the brand of how you can get each part of that ecosystem working in the right way to attract new audiences as well as satisfy the new ones that are the existing ones that have been there for years. So I think there are it, it's it's strategic. It's the way to sort of execute that that kind of strategy. Um, that's the way we've approached it to speak to these sports brands of like, you know, how can they use mixed reality on television, you know, to captivate different audiences and what is the point will it will it will it captivate a, a, a diehard fan that's been watching you know the premier league for 50 years but will it also appeal to someone new that's coming through the ranks that could potentially be a new viewer to the channel because all of a sudden it's relevant to them and even if they watch just an element of that on telly that's a win for them so it's it's really kind of using these new innovations to kind of almost um breadcrumb across the different channels and say which is work which is going to attract and which is going to cross pollinate and create those new innovation opportunities that may lead to different viewing behaviors i think that's really smart i mean i sometimes with the interactive layer on a sporting event i worry that it's actually competing with the event to to do you know what i mean it becomes a distraction do you think there's a danger of that um sometimes with the kind of the interact adding an extra interactive layer to a game uh, if the person hasn't kind of really worked out what's the imperative behind doing this I, and i think that's where the the broadcaster as the main source of where sports is broadcast still um it's their responsibility to get it right and i think we some of the activations that we've been working on we've, we've been limiting them to a minute and a half two minutes max so therefore, if there you have got the potential of that virality moment, so what you're doing on the big screen, if it then goes seeds to social, the people that are interested in short form snippet content, they, they're consuming it and go, oh God, what's this? I haven't seen this before. Right, I'm going to share that. They haven't seen the main 
like um, sporting event, but they've seen this this clip because it's a short enough to give them impact. But it's done in a way that if you are watching it on the main show, it doesn't interfere with the main game per se, unless it's a you know a statistical enhancement of something they're seeing on screen using sort of visual innovation effects like mixed reality or augmented or something like that. But if we're talking about like a something stunt based or performance based that's in and around the game, it's about seeding that as wow they're doing that on television. That's amazing. I've never seen this before. Creating that um, point of difference, I suppose. It's almost like that makes people sit up and go, I wasn't expecting this to happen at halftime or the pre-match um, or when a goal scored. So it's it's not affecting the actual gameplay of what people love, who's the sort of legacy stock people that watch it all the time. But it's providing an overlay, an enhancement to new people to be to come into that and then potentially amplify it in a way that they feel comfortable. And I think that is the, that is the way to go about it that I think will really work, particularly over in Europe compared to the US. I'm, I'm interested in, in whether that, because uh, we're talking about sports broadcast on screens here and how kids interact with sports through their various screens and, and platforms. But you mentioned, Tom, in-venue experience as well. So looking at something that you're seeing with your own eyes through a phone. In in your research, Morris, is that what did you find out from kids about actually going to see live games? You know, we've spoken about how they're consuming it through a screen, but is what's the trend around young kids and next-gen fans in actually going to watch things live? Is that something that still appeals to them? Yes, and that we actually so we asked that in, as part of the quals. So <clears throat> we obviously had a big quant piece and a big qual piece in this, and and the qual dived into some of those more obviously emotional elements, and and live was one of those questions. And actually, it was a real mixed bag. We had it, it kind of really did divide the divide the audience. Um, we had those that love it love it for all the reasons that you'd imagine um first of all it, it kind of plays into i like it because i could, got the opportunity to spend some time with my family um so lots of children were saying i loved it because it was you know a good chance for me and my dad to go and watch a game or me and my auntie to go and watch a game they loved it because they got to see the skills um up close and personal so they got to kind of experience and see their heroes i guess in front of them on the pitch and then actually doing it they particularly loved it if their team won um, so that kind of uh, really resonated with them. One of the other things that uh, came out uh, time and time again was what was the one thing of the live experience you enjoyed was the food. So, so many children would talk about the food uh, and the hot dogs and burgers that they were consuming. On the, on the kind of cons, um, it, a lot of it was about it just being an overwhelming experience. We've got to remember that you know, we were talking to seven to 12 year olds. Some of these kids, 15% of their lives was in the lockdown. So they're not quite used to those bigger kind of louder, crowdy ex experiences. And so a lot of children, the reason why they either didn't want to go or weren't going back was because it was just too much of an overwhelming, noisy, crowded, loud experience for them. So it was kind of that overwhelmedness. Um the number one reason why they weren't going was cost, obviously. Um, it was just kind of too costly or logistics. It was just too far away. But, um, yeah, being overwhelmed was one of those things. So it definitely the live game, the, the kind of watching, going and watching is um, something that, that I think 60% of the children that we spoke to had, had done. Um, so it's not – it is something that's important. But I think a lot of times uh, venues need – 
you know, don't necessarily consider children as much as they probably should do when it comes to some of those live game experiences. That's that's really interesting. I've got a, a sort of personal perspective slightly on this because um, in terms of going to live events. So my, so you talked earlier about the report, your report saying that kind of often the pathway to somebody becoming a fan was through the family or friends. So my youngest daughter, um, so I'm not particularly into football. In fact, I thought part of the deal of having just daughters was the fact that I didn't have to pretend to have any knowledge of football whatsoever. So I feel like this. I'm being a bit cheated um, here because suddenly my youngest daughter has become a big, big football fan. And, um, and, and so she hasn't arrived um, at that place kind of via her immediate family. It's kind of been through friends. And what's also been interesting is that my family as a whole are kind of Tottenham fans on the whole. Um, but my daughter's become um, a big supporter of Arsenal, much to the chagrin of a couple of the, um, the male members of the family. But how she's arrived there is because she's followed players that she really liked in the England team and she's followed those players to the club. And I wondered whether there's... And one thing is that she's also gone to all the live uh, matches that she can go to. So there's definitely been a big draw there. But do you think that pathway to becoming a sports fan is different for girls than it is for boys in terms of how they get there? We do. So, uh, partly, yes. So we, there's actually very little difference between um, the, the kind of the influences on both boys and girls. So like family, friends and players, you know, the three that you mentioned there are the top three, almost irrelevant of country, gender, ethnicity, household income. It's those three are the kind of the, the big three, if you like. Um, so that doesn't change much from a gender perspective. I think what is telling from a kind of gender perspective is around the role models that they have available to them. We did see, for example, there being quite a stark difference between the percentage of boys that said they had a favourite sports player and the percentage of girls who said they had a favourite sports player. So, for example, I think it was like 48% of boys said, yes, I've got somebody who I consider to be my favourite sports personality. And it was only 30% of girls. So there is definitely a lack of available and accessible role models for girls, which will clearly have a fundamental impact on their fandom because you know as we know players is is a is a key route to um uh route to uh fandom um we also know that when people look for players the sorts of players they look for are relatable accessible and skilled obviously you know the Therefore, typically a girl will look for another female player and that's where they will get their kind of their, their relatability, relatability from. You know, out of all of the players that we um, ha had, I think we had over kind of 400 individual players called out of the, the kind of of all the top players of, of the top 10 players of every single country. There are only three women in there. So there was um, Serena Williams, um, Simone Biles, who were both in the American top 10. And then of all the other countries, the only other female was uh, Mary Earps, um, uh, UK. So there's definitely a dearth of role models. And I think it's a little bit of a kind of a, you know, a catch-22 that the girls aren't being necessarily exposed to a lot of female sports and a lot of female role models. And therefore, they're not necessarily entering the sports world. So, you know, there's definitely a fundamental requirement to 
buck that trend and to show more sports and to highlight that. And I think we're getting there. You know, I do think oh, we're getting uh, there. Yeah, There's- I mean, uh, having I got dragged along to one of the Arsenal matches and um, and a couple of things struck me. Was one, the tickets are incredibly cheap. So actually, it's a really good day out for the whole family because um, their tickets cost, uh, you know, to go to the Emirates, it costs them £6 a ticket. Um, and the adults cost 15 quid. Now, there aren't that many events that you can go to in the middle of London where at that scale where you can get the whole family there for under 50 quid. I mean, it's cheaper than going to the cinema. Um, yeah. And, and it, yeah, it was just a really interesting experience. Quite a lot of families, uh, maybe because of that price point. Um, I mean, as you'd expect, a lot of women, um, but really good atmosphere um, and maybe some of the loutishness that you might get in some of the men's game. Maybe maybe that was less prevalent there. But And they had 60,000 people there. So you definitely got the sense that it was part of an upward swell that was just each match they were getting more and more people coming along. So, yeah, and it felt like the live bit was an important aspect of it. And, and have you it. noticed okay. any trends, Tom? Sorry, I was coming to you next. I was going to say, have you have you noticed any trends and differences in in the kind of interactivity that you've worked on that's you know aimed targeting women versus men? Yeah, well, I was just going to. What Andy was saying is very interesting because we uh, one of the sort of fan engagement technologies that we that have come out of what we used on one of the broadcast activations at uh, for um, an index Saturday night takeaway which was for a virtual interactive audience. We've worked to use that technology to then bring it to the fans in venue, which basically is a very easy, accessible, it's a QR code that goes up on the screen, fans scan the QR code and creates a live video feed on their on their mobile phone device. And it's really instant. It's, it's something that they, the, the clubs absolutely love because the fans, when they see themselves on screen, they go absolutely nuts because they're on the big jumbotrons. It's really, really simple. But in terms of the male-female split, a lot we work with Atletico Madrid and their Feminino team have seen engagement numbers threefold over the um, the traditional sort of more more populated in terms of capacity in the stadium. But the the fans that are there for the women's game, particularly more families, are so much more engaged because of the, the vibe. They, it feels like much more of an experience-led. Um, moment that they're sharing often they're bringing their whole family along so adding these kind of interactive layers that make the experience more memorable so in years to come they'll go do you remember we went to that match and we did this cool thing on screen as a family and that's what we're trying to tap into the technology and i think it's those trends that are starting to emerge and the clubs are starting to get on get on board with like oh wow it's the the engagement side on the on the female side of the clubs is where we can really kind of go to town with trialing out lots of new initiatives with interactivity in stadiums because the appetite is there. And I think that whole is, is vastly untapped across the clubs um, in Europe. And, but we're starting to see these trends emerge of like, oh, hang on, the, 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 whilst they might be slightly less at the moment in terms of population coming to the stadiums, the ones that are there are like super keen to do things that we're trying and because it's part of the experience and most of them haven't done it before. So you can really shape them through interactivity in the venue that's going to benefit the club, the brand that's involved, um, 
you know, and any sort of innovators that are working in this space. So I think that's going to be really something that sort of really emerges next year and quite exciting for the female side of, of the sporting um, industry. And back to, to what you said about that, Morris, just remind us, what's, what was the difference that came out in the report that kind of what is that additional layer of information that girls like versus boys when they're getting into sports and fans and players and teams? I mean, so typically the two actually track quite closely to each other. So like the number one thing that girls are looking for is skills, is, you know, they want to be wowed by incredible skills and incredible kind of feats of, of sporting um, uh, amazement. Um, so, you know, a lot of the time they are... the, the they kind of track with each other, but what we do see is um, is I, I guess a different of 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 uh, um, the amount that they like certain things. So, for example, as I mentioned, when we look at um, wanting to know the background um, and wanting to understand some slightly more of the personalities behind some of the the players and some of the journeys that the players took. Um, went on in order to, to kind of overcome. So for example, there was a great story about a girl who was a big fan of a female uh, wheelchair fencer called Bebe in Italy. Um, and there was three or four girls and, and it, it kind of jumped out as being a, a very much an, a, a kind of an exceptional circumstance because we heard so many people mention this, this female um, athlete. And there were so many girls that were so very inspired by her because of all the challenges that she'd, she'd overcome, whereas we didn't hear that so much from the boys. The boys were a bit more like, I love Ronaldo because he's just an amazing player. I love Messi because he's an amazing player. So we heard more of those stories of, I like the challenges that they overcome and the journey that they came through and the personality that they have. We would hear more of that from the girls and the boys. And we would hear more of the, I like this guy because he's number one. You know, I like I like messy because he is the greatest football player of all time so they would they would be slightly more focused on some of the more kind of quantifiable achievements than necessarily some of the more emotional stuff and mm. it, it it just hearing you both speak it's really exciting to think that actually women and girls sport even though it's coming from a place of being on the back foot actually might place it at the forefront of how sports and sports fandom will evolve. And that's really interesting to me. I've always been a, a sport fan. I did gymnastics as a girl, but, you know, I would watch darts, I'd watch snooker, I'd watch football. I just love sport. But I really love this idea also that women's sport might be this testing ground for what for our kids and their kids might be this new evolution in how kids and young people engage with um, sport um, through, think, through screens and live. Sorry, just to add to that, Joe, I just think, think that, you know, when we look at some of the new sports that are coming through, also what I'm finding really interesting is how they are approaching this. So there's a, there's a few, like particularly in motorsports, there's a few motorsports where it's a man-woman driving team. And basically, it's like the guy does a lap, gets out. The girl does a lap, gets out. The guy does a lap. And so they're kind of baking in kind of gender neutrality into the fundamentals of the sport itself. So rather than having this, you know, this kind of male sports and female sports kind of being separated, they're actually a lot of the new sports are working out how they can bring those, you know, bring the genders together and make it very much a gender neutral sport, which I think is just really interesting and exciting as far as, you know, it's... It, it, um, 
again bringing bringing the two genders together into a into a, a yeah. fandom environment. The, I, I, my only kind of thought on that, and this is just from observation of my daughter, is that I think part of what her and her friends enjoy is the idea that it's women's football rather than if it had been mixed because they kind of they sort of relish the whole fact that if they go on Twitter afterwards there'll be lots of boys complaining about women's football they'll kind of enjoy that aspect of it because it's it's you know it's um sometimes it's quite enjoyable to put boys in their place um and um and so I think that dimension to it is is definitely part of it and and another aspect of it which is kind of just in some ways intrinsic to the fact that it's kind of more of a new thing is that a lot of the a lot of the women players have you know there have been players that up until recently have been doing three or four jobs um, to get by so it's a very different role model from the football role model that will be quite bling and maybe a bit pampered and very and very kind of big salaries this kind of almost is a bit more that they've pulled themselves up by their bootstraps, not to kind of, no pun intended, but that, that there's kind of that aspect of it. There's almost a bit more grit to the women's football experience. And I think a lot of the female fans kind of enjoy that contrast. Mm. And, and in terms of, um, I think it's interesting to think that actually new sports, again, you're talking about, you know, evolutions of existing sports where males and females might come together, but also evolution and, and new sports coming through. And, and I'm interested to see whether it, it, or what you think about whether it could come from a digital space in, in you know, gaming or that social media space, mainly because I, um, really popular experience on Roblox is based on dodgeball. And then on my social media feeds, I start seeing dodgeball leagues <laughs> popping up and think, actually, could, could these new sports or evolutions of sports actually be born and, and grow from the less live kind of match-based space and actually grow into that space from the digital ones? We did see that. <clears throat> so we did see, you know, we, we, one of the questions we were, we were asking around fandom was, you know, where did you discover the fandom and how do you... Uh, how do you fuel your fandom? And a lot of children were fueling their fandom through participating in a, in a more of a digital experience. You know, as you'd imagine, if they're a football fan, they would jump straight onto FIFA. If they're an NFL fan, they'd be jumping onto Madden. So they're kind of living the digital and, and the physical um, kind of side by side um, from a fandom perspective. But what was interesting is, is as a part of the sports research, we also were asking about esports. And actually the number of sports teams number of esports teams that were being called out as my favorite sports team so we would have your manchester united's and your dallas cowboys and the you know philadelphia eagles and, and whoever they may be but you would also have for example like fanatic who are a huge esports mm -hmm. team being called out to the point where these some of these esports teams are being called out more than a, probably the vast majority of premier league teams so there's a really interesting kind of like wave of Esports and you know whether or not you consider esports to be a sport or not, and actually you know these kids are probably at the forefront of the new wave of what does it, what does sporting, what does sports mean, what does sports team means, what does sports personality means, and actually can digital sports be just as 
valuable and, and useful in or in a fandom perspective and the role that kind of traditional sports play. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a it's a very much a watch this space on, on esports and how that's fitting into the sports world at the moment. Mm. And as someone, Tom, who who is in that world in terms of stadia and studio and bringing sports into there, do you see esports coming into your world as well? Well, I think that something that I'm really strongly looking at at the moment is the emergence of how airspeeder is going to evolve. Because I think that that as a, as a new sport that's technologically focused, it's got the same ambitions and growingly budgets as something like the F1 or Formula E. I think how that's trying to evolve itself as trying to capture, you know, the esports market and the traditional live uh, attended sports um, fandom is really interesting not only from a uh, technological perspective you know the fact that human beings are going to be basically flying around in life-size drones but also the the evolution of the sport is looking like they they want to have almost like an esports league which eventually if you are just playing with these digital versions online you could potentially pilot one of these um uh yourself not sitting in it but like remotely so you could become like elite by being very good at flying these drones on the digital side of things as a game, as an esports game. But then that's where the overlap comes. You're, you're capturing two different markets. The opportunity is new of how you enter it in the kind of physical side. So I think that that, in terms of what it does for broadcast as a sport, visually it's going to look incredible. They're flying out in the desert in Australia at the moment doing trials. Um and I can't remember what broadcast has picked up the rights to it, but it's going to be on linear so already, but then there's going to be this whole other side that's going to evolve. And I'll be really interested to see how that captures the esports fans and how that bleeds into one another and how that plays out. And I think that could pave the way for other new generations of sports in a similar fashion. So I'm really keen to see how that one plays out. And did you find that there was a hunger for those new kinds of sports as well versus the traditional footballs and hockeys of uh, that you spoke about in your report, Morris? Yeah, so I can't remember exactly off the top of my head. So we're actually publishing. So esports ended up being such an interesting bit. We've, we've actually publishing a fourth report as part of this data set, which is specifically on esports. Um we did see esports as being um, up there as one of the most popular sports. It's still, again, it's it's quite hard because you ask children, you know, what's your favourite sport? They might not naturally think of esports, even when we go to kind of prompt it. So, you know, the data isn't necessarily truly indicative of, of opinions around esports. But we did see esports coming up quite highly. I think what's also interesting is we we dealt with a lot of industry partners in this. So we, for example, we we um, had expert contributors from Manchester City Football Club, from Red Bull Racing, from um, even like a Los Angeles Angels and the San Diego Padres, and lots of other kind of sporting organisations. All of them were very interested in how esports, the role that esports plays. Manchester City has their own esports team, and they don't just play FIFA. The Manchester City esports team also plays like Fortnite tournaments. There's also an entire Sims racing, a Red Bull racing Sims team that are kind of sister teams to the Formula One team. So all these big sports organizations are definitely seeing the value of sports. We're seeing it coming both from the kids as far as 
we think this is a sport, this is important, and I'm treating it and considering it in my mind the same way I do traditional sports. But we're also seeing it coming from industry more and more, where the bigger players are all going, yes, this is just as important, and, and it's just as important to have an esports team as it is a real football, racing, whatever it may be team. Well, thank you. We're, we're nearly at the hour mark, um, but this has been fascinating. I'm really interested to pick, perhaps pick back up on this uh, in a few months' time and after you've uh, published the other parts of your report to see what else it kind of shows us. Because in, I'm certainly interested in how, how this kind of evolution of fandom will not only evolve how sports is broadcast and served to kids, but actually how it will change sport itself and sporting events and the very sports themselves. Um, so thank you for joining us. It's been super interesting. Okay, that's it for today's episode. So we hope you enjoyed our discussion on sports fandom and gained some valuable insights. If you want to hear more content like this, subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. Feel free to contact us on social media. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you on the next Kids Media Club podcast.